Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode on Lesak Barros with Uche. I am your host, Uche. To everyone who's been following me and supporting me, thank you so much. As usual, thank you, thank you, thank you. For anyone who is new, please welcome to my podcast. And if you're new here, please make sure to download, subscribe, share with your friends and family. And please give me a rating on your podcast platforms. And if you're new to my YouTube channel, of course, please subscribe and hit that bell notification. So anytime I upload a video, you'll be the very first to be notified. So today's podcast episode is going to be another interview. And today I'm going to be re-interviewing one of my really good friends, Ryan. I had interviewed him a few months ago during one of my episodes titled Let's Talk About Sex. And I'm going to attach a link down below for anyone who's missed it. I, I divided it into two. There are two episodes, part one and part two, Let's Talk About Sex. It's really heartfelt. It's really honest. It's really raw. So if you enjoy talking about sex, if you want to learn something about sex, sexuality, LGBTQ, Kinsey scale, whatever it is that has to do with sex, I'm going to attach the link down below so that you can view it, listen to it, and hopefully learn something from it. So back then, Ryan was still in Africa. He's doing a lot of work. He's doing a lot of great work for a lot of children in Africa, specifically underprivileged children in Africa. And he's visiting the U.S. Ryan is originally from the U.S. He's back to the U.S. for the holidays, and I have the opportunity to have him in my home today. So I am going to be interviewing him in regards to what he does in Africa. So, Ryan, could you please give us another quick introduction of yourself? Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Welcome, Uche. It is good to be back, although a slightly different topic. Uh, my name is Ryan. I work in Africa in the fields of development and education, going on my fourth year. Uh, love the podcast. Encourage people to also subscribe and hit the bell notification. Thank you. Happy Thank to you. be back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. It's really nice to have you here. Um, you and I, we talk all the time, even though we've only recorded once the Let's Talk About Sex episode, but we talk almost every week and we've talked about a lot of things that has to do with not just black issues, but a, a lot of times black issues, um, African issues. I do want to give a disclaimer real quick. The whole the po the point of this podcast is not to sound ignorant or naive at all. I do find it interesting having you as an American who lives in Africa and doing a lot of work in Africa. And for you, this is like a lifestyle. You're not just there for a semester or doing some type of mission work. You're actually really invested your time and your energy. You've been living in Africa for four years. So this is your life. Like you're so dedicated to your work in Africa that you come back to America once a year. You know, and I find this very, very interesting. So the reason I'm making this podcast or at least this podcast interview is because as an African that lives in America, a lot of Africans find it very difficult to see hope for Africa. You know, a lot of times I, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the with the articles that say that some of the brightest minds in Africa don't live in Africa. Mm -hmm. Some of the hardest, uh, the, 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 the best doctors in Africa don't practice in Africa. So a lot of times some of the brightest minds, some of the most educated people in Africa keep running away from Africa. And there's this dilemma of some people thinking that there's no hope in Africa, Africa is doomed and currently being recolonized by the Chinese, you know, so there's really nothing going to be fruitful in Africa. So a lot of people keep running away from Africa. The average African, especially for like from Nigeria, it's desperately looking for a visa to come to the West in search of greener pastures. And then on the other hand, you have a lot of people, Africans in diaspora, who claim that Africa is the future, you know, come back to Africa and invest. So it's a, it's a little bit of a dilemma. I find it very interesting that you, you're not even African, you're American. 
and you leave your privilege behind you know you're coming from the u.s um as a privileged man very educated you have so many opportunities you leave all that behind and move back to africa to invest your time your energy a lot of people would find that very interesting as to why so could you please share with us why you decided to embark on this journey what were your initial what was your mission statement what did you hope to get out of it what incited that that push for you to actually get on that plane separate from your family from your loved ones and head straight to africa and be doing what you're doing all right that's a good set of questions <laughs> <laughs> and if you need me to repeat anything just let me know yeah, i just yeah. repeat it no problem absolutely um i think it's good to specify and i think this does apply to other expatriates that live abroad is it's not one decision that was made at one point of time that sustained your want to stay in that country or in that place for the rest of your time but it's almost like there's an initial decision to leave and to go abroad and then there's a series of micro decisions that keep you to stay so i feel like again this is kind of like my late teenage young adulthood journey was this discovery of like where I want to be and what work do I want to do and I think for me one of the things that was most poignant in the beginning is like the reason that I left is no longer the reason why I stay but I do feel like having gone like my reasons for staying didn't exist when I first came so I guess for me like starting at the beginning and maybe true for a lot of expatriates is I left America for an African country to work specifically for my own ego and my own identity. I think I grew up in a very close-minded community that laughed at the idea of Africa, laughed at the idea of travel, um, and I really did not like the idea of getting pinned into a box. So when the opportunity came up, it was not just because I wanted to explore the world or because I was interested in all these things, but a large part of it too was just like, I wanted to prove people wrong. I wanted to prove myself wrong of who I thought I was. And so that first step was really motivated by me, like going out on my own self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was a lot of other <clears throat> factors that helped influence that decision, but like that was the initial first step. And I don't know how true that would be for other people. But now I don't feel that at all. Like when I think about my day-to-day -day life now, I'm not necessarily like challenged with that identity crisis no more. It really has been like, I think all the years of experience that I built up in Africa has built a like compassionate tie to these communities that now keeps me sticking around. So you wanted to, you, you said you wanted to prove something to yourself or to your family when you took that initial step to leave the US. I think that's like, it goes hand in hand with a lot of other people's like identity uh, battles is like you get projected onto yourself what the world thinks you should be and I think not only are you trying to fight other people's expectations of yourself but also you start to ingrain those expectations in yourself as well and to the point of like it almost becomes your own voice in your own head so I felt like I had two conflicting voices in my head like one telling mm -hmm. me the story of like anything is possible and you can do whatever you want mm -hmm. and I had this other story of just like you're just too uneducated, poor, rural, like none of this is an option for you. And like, why are you even considering it? Okay. Now you're from New England, yes. right? So what would be the the expectation of a white man from New England if you had never left? What, what was the narrative? Uh, so <laughs> my town has this saying of like, you can stand on your doorstep and see your entire life. Mm. So usually it's like, 
for people in my community, especially like deep, deep farming communities, it's you grow up, you usually inherit land from your family or from your neighbor, mm -hmm. and you work on the land of either <clears throat> your family or your neighbor. So I would say like there's a lot of intergenerational communities built up in New England because people just stay. And a lot of our rites of passage are more superficial than they are genuine. So like education is not about trying to progress yourself and discover who you are and like build up a skill set that fits your role in the world. It's more so about like, well, this is just what you do between age 14 to 18. Mm -hmm. And then you get to move on back to the farm. Mm -hmm. So that was supposed to be my life journey is I saw that a lot of people and I see that in my siblings and in my family of people who just get trapped, even though they've gone through all the right mm -hmm. systems that mm -hmm. have been laid out for them. And that was expected of you. Like everyone expected, hey, he's going to graduate from high school if he does graduate mm -hmm. and then back to the farm. Yeah, I feel like the expectation for my hometown is like, well, let's hope you get through high school without a kid. Oh, oh wow. And yeah, I think like it was 15% <clears throat> of my graduating class, the ones who graduated wow. who were already parents. So that's kind of the expectation is like, how long do you go before you get put down into parenthood? And then kind of like a lot of the doors in the world start closing down. And you didn't want to conform to that? No, not at all. So, so, but what pushed you to actually want to challenge that? Because obviously a lot of people are conforming to that, right? Because, mm. you know, that, that's pretty common from where you're from, right? Mm. And these are, I feel like these are the part of America, specifically white America, that the rest of America don't hear about. You know, people who, quote unquote, could benefit from white privilege, but they're just, they just conform to a more traditional, tr traditional lifestyle mm. that may not necessarily push them further on the, on the pedestal or at least in the, you know, in the status of what privilege is in America. So what is it about you that's different that actually, what did you think, what happened, what happened in your life that pushed you to mm. want to do something different as opposed to conforming to maybe the way your parents were, your siblings, cousins mm. or whatever it is, what pushed you? Yeah. And I think it's good to point out that, like, I feel like this story I just painted makes people in my community seem like they're doing this against their will. And it is very true that a lot of people are content with that lifestyle. Um, for me, I think when I was younger, I think I was just very confused on how close-minded I thought other people were, how mm. little they valued certain aspects of themselves and growth. And I remember, I have this very distinct memory of being in my, like, AP biology class and being the only one who was given a test and taking a test while everyone else sat there. It was like no one else cared. And I can't I imagine like I remember seeing that exam and being like other people <clears throat> just eating their lunch like they don't even care. And I felt like a rebel for that. And that was weird. So I think part of the reason I couldn't conform to that or I didn't want to was because it didn't work for me. I think now being older and having recognized certain aspects of myself, such as being queer and it has also recognized I'm like I never was going to fit into that mm, traditional role and like there was no spot for me in that society like there's a system for everyone mm -hmm. else but there wasn't a system in which I could now look back and see like oh as a gay man like this is where I would have ended up in my mm -hmm. hometown cycle like it didn't exist okay and I felt like that was another thing of like okay to get out like, so you just didn't feel like you fit in there was no you felt like there was no representation for your type of person you know everybody else had a place and you had this longing to find yourself and you took that opportunity to go find yourself yeah and i guess like in the aspect of feeling alone and not only are you alone but like you're sitting there feeling isolated from being the best version of yourself like mm -hmm. no one there was 
pushing me to like where I wanted to be pushed. Like no one was like getting on that intellectual level with me. Mm, wow. Like no one wanted to engage in that. I, I really commend that because a lot of people, a lot of young people especially, don't even have that um, intrinsic motivation to try to do something different. Mm. A lot of people are naturally averse to change. A lot of people comfortably and easily conform to lifestyles of their parents, their ancestors, and that's how a community is set, you know, for generations to come. And I really commend you for taking that that first step. You know, really, yeah. I do, I do commend you. That's that's a huge. And it can be scary, too. Yeah. And I think it's just important to note that, like, both of these paths are fine, Mm -hmm. ultimately. Yeah, I think about, like, I might come back and have judgments about these people I went to high school with of, like, oh, but you never got this degree or you never did this, you never did that. But I think they're looking at me and doing the same thing of, like, you don't know what it's like to be a parent. Like, you haven't put a down payment on a house before. So, like... There's value in both of those stories. It's just one of them wasn't fitting for me. Mm, I guess hey, that goes back to what you define as success at, at yeah. the end of the day, you know. Okay, thank you. Um, but why Africa, though? Because you did mention earlier that your family thought of Africa as low and this and that. And it's not just your family. Let's just mm. keep it real. Even a lot of Africans think of Africa as bottom of the barrel. Yeah. And I talk about that here on my podcast all the time, how how that came to be it's much deeper than that there's this unanimous belief that africa is the bottom of the barrel there's nothing going on in africa there's no future there's no this and there's no that and then here you are um a white man from new england why africa you could have gone anywhere you could have gone to europe you could have gone to australia you could have gone to asia why africa specifically and the reason why i ask is again you've been in africa for years and you've also worked and gone to school in several African countries, even did research in um, Madagascar. Madagascar, you know. So reading and hearing about that, I find it very interesting. What is it about Africa specifically that drew you to Africa? And this is even more interesting because I don't even know, me personally, maybe I'm just confused, but me personally, mm-hmm. I don't even know any African who's done that. Like travel within Africa as diligently as you have worked within Africa as diligently as you have, even done research in Africa as diligently as you have, and then and now here you are. Why Africa specifically? All right, I'm gonna I'm go back again and say like, that why is gonna come from the start. Like, why did I go? Not maybe necessarily why I stayed or why I stuck in the continent when I had moments of transition. Yeah, but wh- why did you why choose did Africa? Choose? Like, yep. you, you could have had a one-way ticket to London, for example, yep. or Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. Why Africa? I think I have two reasons, and I don't think either of them paint a very good picture. I think the first one is going back to me trying to prove a point. I think the ego. The ego of like, I think a lot of the rest of the world has kind of been carved out by white people already. Like the past exists. It's just like when you think about Central America, like they, I think they have something called like the Gringo Trail. Like, there's a very easy like pathway you can connect of like where white people feel safest and most welcome through Central America. Mm. So when you think about where did I want to go to prove my point most, like how outrageous did I want to make my family feel like I was, obviously Africa oh. was the easiest because of its preconceived notions, because of how little is actually understood about it. Specifically, I started off in Zanzibar, which was just me being like, yeah, I'm going to go fuck around on an island for a few months. Mm-hmm. That's one of, like, the wow factor of, like, that being the best argument for me to put out to prove this to myself. Oh, so you wanted to shock your family. That was... I guess, like, shocking to myself, too. Like, that would probably be the biggest step. So find the craziest like, the, thing and the do the it. the craziest thing and do it. I see. I would say the second thing is, is, like, 
my first opportunity came from study abroad mm -hmm. through my university as someone who is on a lot of financial aid like options are limited mm -hmm. so when you end up actually thinking about like what was available for me I couldn't just get on a plane anywhere I think that's another interesting thing I don't know much about the study abroad world but a lot more of my options did exist in Africa which was something that like my funders were willing to pay for me and it wasn't that other countries were as affordable hmm. okay so you went to Zanzibar through your school yeah oh not through funded through my funded through funded your through school the, same people who were funding my university. It was degree. Tanzania the only option that you had? I think I had maybe, I think also like Namibia was on there. Namibia. And okay. yeah, maybe like the Australia, New Zealand, like entering into one of the mainstream universities. But yeah, my options were very limited because I wasn't going to be paying. Okay. So you just decided to choose the most, the most extreme. The most extreme. Okay. Yeah. So how long were you in, in uh, Tanzania for? Uh, Tanzania, I think I was in there for five months five I was months. supposed to be six and then it was in 2015 when they had their presidential elections and for those people who know Tanzania and Zanzibar it's not a really good place to be uh, during those times so at one point we did get evacuated and that's what ended me up in Madagascar for a month okay yeah so how how was that experience that obviously that's your first time on the continent right mm -hmm. through your school mm -hmm. and so you were there on a mission yeah so how was that experience being in Africa for the first time specifically in Tanzania and also Madagascar how was that if you were to summarize mm -hmm. I would say like at the end of the day it really <clears throat> made me recognize that I cannot shake some of the stuff that I grew up with I definitely like landed like what? landed and was like oh like this isn't like a tropical island with like <laughs> huts and shit and people surfing like no, no no it was like oh this is like an african country that suffers a lot from mm -hmm. poverty and like and kind of like rebuilding my conception of like even though i was supposed to not be biased and my whole like vision i had for myself yeah. i still had all these preconceived notions i was mm -hmm. working with i think for me like the best way i can describe what my time in zanzibar offered me other than like the education that was coming along part of it was this whole goal I was setting up for who I was was really based on me being self-ethical in this new country like I wanted to have my own friends I wanted to be able to go and enter like romantic scenes I wanted to like have hobbies and have passions I wanted it to like be my life I wanted to prove to myself like I can fucking live anywhere like nothing stops me from being who I'm supposed to be regardless of where I am but because that drove me to just be out on my own a lot mm -hmm. interacting with people and outside of the program which i think is pretty rare for these like white dominated study abroad programs it did mean like i built these connections i built these understandings that now are starting to build up my foundation of like my connection to this specific place and i feel like that it's kind of like a through line through a lot of my african ties of a lot of my base comes back to probably having a sense of like attachment and belonging now in some of these countries and some of these feelings I get of being uncomfortable or being out of my comfort zone like those have now brought me security because they have been such a pivotal part of what I do almost mm -hmm. like an everyday thing okay so you were able to find those connections that you know that kind of connection that you were looking for I guess that was missing back here in the U.S. you were able to find them in Tanzania I I don't know if I can say that or at I least, were you able to find something, even though it's, even if it's just a little bit of what was missing mm. while you were still back in the U.S., were you able to find something that was worth 
trying to hook on hook onto per se hmm. maybe if i were to answer that question maybe like a new version of myself you were able to discover a new version of yourself myself, and that's what i hooked on to okay this this new embodiment i had and who i was and how people thought of me like i liked that version of myself better than the kid who studied too much because that was what i was previously working off of so i went from like a misfit that was looked down upon mm -hmm. and was unhappy to now being like a misfit who like was making it work and i felt like that's what i like clinged on to more in in tanzania and madagascar your first yeah okay it's almost like people are still like side-eyeing you but for this time it's like not something you're ashamed of mm. so you did mention that you were interested in making new connections include a romantic connection and i'm really interested to know considering the fact that you did mention that you're queer um and africa is not necessarily the most queer friendly place how did you navigate at least the first few encounters mm. um or at least your first few visit to africa how did you how were you able to navigate that you, know, you also have to deal with the fact that africa a lot of places you've been to are predominantly black so you're going to stand out as the mm. only white man or even white person in the area so how were you able to navigate being of a different ethnicity a different nationality um not necessarily conforming to heteronormativity while trying to be yourself and you know make family and create long-lasting connections mm. I would say like maybe building first off of like the race part is as a white person, unfortunately, like just so many mm, Africans, uneducated Africans, regular Africans get built into this framework of like this person could be a gateway for me. So I would say, mm, I see. Yeah. I wait, think, wait, would you call that opportunist mindset? Yeah, or, but not or, one that someone's like employing out of spite, but almost out of being like taught that time okay. and time again. So I would say like there were definitely times where I was pursued by people or I felt like an interaction was going a little too quickly because of that mindset. Mm. And so that's always something I have in the back of my head now of like, what is this person's end game? Mm. Which is a really shitty thing to be doing in your relationships and kind of like fucks with your self-worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I would say that was first. And I think like if you go back to our previous podcast, like being by like it did allow me to operate in both spaces where I think, I think a big thing that happens to expatriates is like, you have to carve out what is comfortable for you in this new space. There are going to be aspects that are uncomfortable that you will never be able to work out of, but you have to figure out like, what are your core tenets that you can't give up on? Mm -hmm. And romance is a big part of that. Yeah. So I think some people never figure that out and that's why they leave. I think a lot of people like give it a couple years and then they're like, I don't see anyone here that I foresee myself being with forever mm. or the dating scene doesn't work with how they work. And so they exit. And then, so for me, I was able to exist in Africa longer because if I think if I was just gay, I don't know if that's a phrase, just gay, mm -hmm. but I think if I was only attracted to men, I would have gotten frustrated faster. Oh, okay. And probably would have dipped out. But I think my journey so far has been moving slightly to more progressive countries with every transition I've made. Okay. So now I feel like I'm at a place where I'm not anxiety written all the time when I'm with a man. Yeah. Um, and there is a little bit more acceptance, but still at the same time, it's um, you're operating underneath like a cloud of shame and disguise and mm -hmm. all that. And that wears on you over time. 
just like for people who um, are DL or closeted in America too. Mm-hmm. So like, I feel like, yeah. yeah, I've thought about it sometimes of like, I've ruled out a lot of Africa now of places I would go to next because of what the kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. I could live there. And it's also made places like the EU and America a lot more attractive because I would know like, oh, I could enter into some of those spaces mm-hmm. and be a lot more comfortable with who I am. But then you're also bisexual, so you play both games, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. both, both sides. So you're not just waiting around for a man. You you know, you're also available to women as well. You know, so it's not you're not really frustrated playing the game of um, is this taboo to this person or is it not or you know things like that. So you're dis- you're definitely occupied in a re- romantic or maybe even sexual experience while being in Africa, as opposed you- to like you know somebody who was 100% gay. Um, having to navigate all those differences, yeah. social differences, cultural differences, and sexual differences, that could be, that could stand out much more, and it could be more more of a challenge, but for you, not necessarily, because you play both sides. I would say, like, yeah, I guess, like, in, like, relationships had, like, it's been <clears throat> able to balance out, but I would say, like, in the way you feel, or just, like, the ability to be, like, interested in someone and want to pursue them, like, a lot of those doors start to close off for bisexual people, too. Mm. So I would say, like, it's not just so much of, like, well, as long as I always have an option B, I'll be okay. Oh, uh, I see. But it's also, like, it sucks to be told your option A is never an option, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So living in South Africa, like, it's a lot more open-minded. Like, option A is usually there. Um, but in some of the past places I've lived like that, that was always a really scary option to take, especially when it was like presented as well. Mm, okay. Well, and, and uh, of course, obviously you're not there to pursue just relationships and mm-hmm. sex and things like that. You know, you're, you're there to work, you know, you've been doing a lot of work, um, which we're going to get into in a bit. But after your first encounter in Africa, Tanzania, Madagascar, you went back to the States, correct? And you'd also you also did travel you did some school work outside of Africa as well. Like you went to Asia. Yeah. Asia at some point and mm-hmm. you know, um India, right? India, correct. You went to India. Um but then you also chose to to come back to Africa. Mm. Why Africa the second time? Because obviously it, it means that the first experience was great, it went mm. well. But why did you choose to go back to Africa? And what did you go back to Africa the second time for? Mm-hmm. Was it school, pleasure? Was it work? Yeah. So after my experience in India, I had another experience in Guatemala. So, you know, I've been placing myself on different points of the map. Mm-hmm. Um, it was after university where I had my first job opportunity in which I was offered a position of being located in India or in Kenya, a place I had not yet been. I want to say I was somewhat influenced to like get a new passport stamp. I think I was still operating <laughs> underneath that like, ooh, like explore, build yeah, up, like, yeah. I know that feeling. Mm. But I think secondly, I also just think like there is a compatibility of like you to a place too. And having been in some different places, although I can't say I know as much about them as I did for some of these places I stayed longer, I, I think I just grew to have a better understanding of East Africa. I grew to understand that I liked that culture more. I grew to understand that although being a white person in many parts of the world, there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages too. Way more advantages, but it's just the way that I think I was going to be perceived and how that would allow me to live a life uh, was much more attractive to being in Kenya than it was to being in India. 
And so that's what landed me back on the continent again. And maybe I think it's also like, people sometimes will criticize me of not being, let's say like sentimental or emotional or what, 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 because I have like left home, I come back once a month, once a year and all that. And like, what does that mean for like how I build connection? But I would say like at the same time, if you critique me of like, it's also very possible I chose Kenya because I grew to find a sense of home in Tanzania and like Mm. that was going to make me more comfortable than going somewhere else. So I don't think like I'm this like crazy limitless traveler that people might Mm -hmm. naively try to impose on me. I think I somewhat do have a comfort zone, but it just happens to be in a place that I didn't grow up in. Yeah. And it it happened to be um, East Africa because because the opportunity that your school gave you to go to Tanzania. Yeah, that was the first one. You found some parts of you over there that you were never able to find at home. Yeah. Okay. Can you please tell us what did you do in in Kenya? When what kind of job did you do? Oh, okay. Um, I worked for an academy that operated as a nonprofit, and it was a private school. So we definitely had a slew of students that came from kind of like the upper echelons of East African society. Um, Specifically, I worked for their scholarship program that brought in students from lower socioeconomic status within coastal Kenya, which was where the academy was located. So a lot of my work was working with like kind of the students that were the minority within their grades and working at supporting them to move through the system and find success after. So the school, I would say maybe predominantly, like maybe like 90% was kids whose like parents were ambassadors or things like that. And then there was a very small fraction of each class that were these financial aid students who like mm. doing some of the visits like homes didn't have roofs on them. Oh, okay. Maybe so you were parents, focusing on like, those. Yeah, those were the ones that I was specifically hired to work with. And what was that program like? How long did it last? What was what was your job description? Mm. What, what did you do for these kids? What did I do? Uh, I was there for them for two years. My job was everything from like intake and admissions, like going out to communities, administering the tests, doing the interviews, to then some of the nitty gritty of like supporting students. So obviously like these kids are making a really big transition from a traditional government school into like a private international baccalaureate curriculum. So it was really overseeing some of their like cultural and academic transitions into that. And then also sometimes just some of the very basic stuff of like getting them dewormers because that was an issue that they had at home mm-hmm. that they now were getting faced with in the school. Um, <clears throat> communicating with parents. So essentially it was like I acted as a mentor and a support system mm, for I students see. who were facing more challenges to move through the school because of the system that they had gone through previously. And how much of that was passion and how much of that was actually work? Oh, all of that was passion. Passion. When I was first hired, they put me in these programs. I had no care for them. I started working with these students and I kind of like proposed it to my future boss. of like, hey, you need this. Like, give me the tools and I'll put it to work. And like, I gradually shifted out of all my other programs and started doing that. So it was a lot of passion to serve underprivileged children, basically. Yeah, and I feel like part of me is it, it comes with, at the end of the day, I can't relate to a lot of these kids. I think I had kids who were 
black, Muslim, <clears throat> female, like the, our shared identity is very few. But I would say at the end of the day, I always recognize like the rebel in them that I saw in myself when mm. I was younger. And I remember like, so I had a pretty big shift from my high school to my university. And I think a lot of times I just felt shitty about myself and stupid because of the gaps I had to mm -hmm. cover to match up with these kids who have gotten support all their lives in these ways. So I feel like a lot of that fueled me to be like, kids shouldn't feel like that. And if you're going to put kids through the system and you're going to say like, this is how we drive the continent forward is by giving these overachievers, mm -hmm. these extraordinary students, this opportunity. It's like, well, then you have to help them really ace that opportunity then, correct? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like <clears throat> trying to commit myself to that model of saying like, if this is how we think we're going to use education as a tool for social change, like we're not going to do that if you don't actually put the work into like the students that you're using as your specific tool. Mm. And how was that? I'm, I'm guessing it was a, a success, you know, having Oof. your your interaction with these kids. You were there for two years, right? Yeah. And did, did they benefit from it? Would you say they benefited from it? I think at the end of the day, like these kids are going to have a lot of adults come in and out of their lives. I think I'm a mm. spec on their timeline. <clears throat> I think more so what I did is I built the system of the program that then other people came in after me to work mm. in. I think that's going to be more useful. I just painting the picture of like what has been happening is there's a belief that if you take high achievers, this is called exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. When you take high achievers and then you try to put them into programs that then open up more doors for them in the future, mm -hmm. it's believed that then they have the opportunities to then come back and create change. So mm -hmm. let's look at like the African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg. The belief is like they can find really extraordinary kids who come from poor backgrounds by giving them this incredible international education, they're gonna be able to get into, let's say an American university that has five higher standards than where they would have got into previously. Mm -hmm. And that education is gonna pour back into Africa once they come back to create change. Is that guaranteed that they'd actually come back? Oh, no. Well, I would <laughs> say it depends on the program. Some make their participants sign contracts. Oh, I see. A lot of them don't come back. And there's a lot more you could say about that. But no, so exceptionalism has a lot of flaws and if you're curious about the way the reason this program was started was because our students in this academy specifically kept failing their matriculant year mm -hmm. and therefore no u.s university was willing to take them mm -hmm. with the amount of financial aid they would need mm -hmm. but then because they were in an international education they no longer qualified for kenyan universities mm -hmm. that they could have if they were just left in their public school <clears throat> so it was entrapping these kids okay yeah all right, so your your job in, in Kenya was mostly, the students were mostly upper echelon, mm. you know, about 90% of them, and then you worked with about 10% of them. That was just in Kenya. You did move to South Africa around the same time that I met you, and now you work with primarily underprivileged kids. Um, a lot of them are very from poor families, um, can't even afford food. Some of them have HIV, you know, things like that. And you're putting a lot of, obviously, passion, a lot of work to try to change their narrative. How do you think, realistically, I want you to answer this realistically. Do you think, um, how do I put this without sounding so condescending? Do you think, does a little, a little part of you feel like that's futile sometimes? And the reason I ask this is, again, I don't want to sound biased. I don't want to sound ignorant. As an African, 
people are talking africans are talking even outside of africa people are talking you know i've seen a lot of africans i'm nigerian i've seen a lot of nigerians who swear on the bible that africa is dead and then i've also seen a lot of africans who swear on the bible that africa is the future um but at the same time too i haven't really seen a lot of africans who leave their privileged western passport and move back to africa to do something um something selfless so to speak you know a lot of times when you see africans or nigerian americans or nigerian privileged nigerians from the west who move back to nigeria or move back to africa that they move back with their privilege in order to capitalize on opportunities that they probably may not necessarily be exposed to without their privilege their western privilege so a lot of times for example uh there's some nigerian nigerians born and raised in america who moved back to nigeria to work in hollywood or nollywood to work mm-hmm. in nollywood to be actors and actresses and things like that and they're more marketable they're mm-hmm. more um preferred because of their western privilege you know what i mean um but very rarely i don't even think i've ever seen that's just me anyway don't, don't judge me i don't think i've seen any nigerian from the UK, from the US, from any of these Western co- uh, countries and continents who move back to Africa in hopes to incite change, you know, because that they believe in Africa, they believe in Nigeria, they believe that Africa is the future, you know, like let's try to change the narrative because Africa has the potential to be on the same pedestal as the UK, the Americas, you know, the Australias and things like that. So I'm asking for, um, as a foreigner, I'm asking you as a foreigner who's dedicated his life, you know, serving these underprivileged kids and watching, creating a lot of the curriculums that they follow. Um, does a little bit, a, a little part of you, you know, think that perhaps this could be futile or maybe not, or maybe out of a hundred kids that you, that go through this program, you know, maybe 90% of them may be a waste, but 10% may not. Or perhaps I just want to understand again, from a, from a foreign perspective, or do you actually genuinely believe that this is very helpful? Realistically, this is going to turn around and help change the narrative of Africa being the bottom of the barrel. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Yeah. Um, I completely accept that. I think uh, the work that a lot of nonprofits do on the continent don't drive any real change. Thank you. Like, oh my God. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for bringing that up because that book by uh, dead aid, she mentioned how, um, a lot of these nonprofit, you know, it, I, I quote nonprofit organizations mm. are actually there to make money. It's become a business of their own and they keep popping up these, uh, charity bullshit ass charity organizations all throughout the African continent but actually what they're doing is capitalizing on people's ignorance and making more money mm-hmm. making profit off of people's ignorance you know and I thank you so much for bringing that up you know when in reality they're not driving any change they're just there to f- uh, f- to feed their own pockets right. and their own ego so it's like oh look at me I'm doing this in Africa you know post pictures and Instagram and all that mm-hmm. dumb shit so thank you so much for bringing yeah. that up thank you I would say like I think what my experience has taught me and not specifically unique to Africa, but maybe most amplified in Africa is like, there's just a level of brokenness at like so many levels of Mm. the system that it is so difficult to recognize, like, where do you start pulling at the levers of change to actually create impact? So like I've committed myself to this idea of like, I exist between the fields of like education and development. I believe that there's a bridge there and like something within that, and that webbing is going to like help alleviate hardship. Mm-hmm. And I think the 
and for people who are similarly in that intersection, like the big question is, is like, well, here's a social issue that maybe we could work on through education. But unfortunately, that social issue weakens the education system. Mm -hmm. So now we can't actually get the exact income or impact that we want through that. So I feel like that's the biggest question of like, there's there doesn't seem to be a good starting point. Can you give us an example where uh, how the social and educational issues are kind of hand in hand? Perhaps something that has to do with um, an outdated cultural mentality mm. and you're trying to drive change through an education curriculum, but then these kids have these um, cultural pressure to conform to this mentality that's passed down to them by, by their parents or for example even religion you know because i know religion is huge is a huge part of african culture mm -hmm. and and i've always often spoken against how a lot of africans just drown in religion you know it, it, it hinders progression so perhaps that could be a problem you know when you're trying to teach people a new way of life or a new way of thinking and persuade them to think outside the box but then there's this fear that god is watching or this and that you know teaching kids about sex education sex education is extremely important i've talked mm -hmm. about that before but unfortunately a lot of people a lot of african parents teach teach their kids that sex is taboo and blah blah and blah but in reality what you're doing is actually giving them formal education that they need that could pre be preventing a lot of you know potential problems so could that be an example yeah i would say like maybe the one that rings truest to me is like there's a belief that one of the biggest like cultural issues in some African countries are like this idea of corruption and how easy it is to fall prey to the corruption that already exists. So is there a belief that you can use education to develop character? Yes. But how does that then work when some of the <clears throat> most stringent corruption happens within the education sector? When you show up to class and your teacher isn't there for two periods but has already clocked in and is sleeping in the teacher's lounge. Uh, or when, let's say this year, like when PPE gets delivered to your school mm, but your principal has siphoned it off to get money for their new car. Mm, it's like, how do you teach kids about how corruption has affected their everyday lives in the education field when education itself is in a dire state of corruption mm, as well? So I feel like that's one of the like ties as well. I think another thing is one of the biggest fights that development has been trying to do is improve elementary school attendance. People just not showing up, both teachers and students. So there's been so much work to try to get that going, going either like top up of trying to like dictate policies that enforce those uh, attendance records or to go uh, bottom up of like trying to support students to be closer to schools or at least be more healthier to attend school. But at the end of the day, like, once they attend school, it's then the issue of like, but what are they learning in school? And does a kid's attendance actually improve their life outcome? And they mm. view that to not be true of like, attending school doesn't necessarily get this kid ahead of life anymore. So although we've worked so hard to get him into class, his life circumstances are still the same. Mm. So there's so many like conflicting battles to fight all at once. And I think there's two models in which people believe is going to be like what changes Africa and it's probably in a mix but there's people who believe that there's going to be a revolution mm -hmm. it's going to be this like radical transformation and these are like <clears throat> the ALA people African Leadership Academy who spend millions and millions of dollars on high class education thinking that they're going to pull up these powerhouses that are going to come back and slam down Africa and all these different levels mm -hmm. then there's also people who believe in like incremental change of like if we can get everyone to commit to deworming once a year 
we can radically change like health outcomes. And then once we have health somewhat more figured out, we can then start approaching using more micronutrients. And it's just like these small, small policy changes that they think are gonna gradually let us open up more doors as certain bigger problems get taken down. So a lot of money goes into both of those, but obviously they're both very critiqued for not showing change yet. Yeah, which one seemed more feasible? Feasible. Feasible mm. as in like able to be carried out or feasible mm. as in like will have an impact? Both. Um, easier to carry out are these revolutionary things. Of, it's very fun to work with high achieving students or high achieving people and trying to like give them the empowerment that they might lack. And that's, that's assuming that they actually do come back and yeah. have, have the continent. Um, so that's the, the easy continent's to development do. at heart. That's the easy one to do, and that's why a lot of models work this way, of like, oh, let's just set up a private school and take the best <coughs> and smartest students. Um, probably the more the one that's more realistic for change is the incremental process, because you actually know what change looks like in that case. No one knows what a revolution of Africa is gonna look like. No one knows what it really looks like when like tens upon tens of alumni come back from, let's say, a foreign university to create change. Like, no one knows what that- But are they, though? Like. Are they going to? And, and the reason why I ask this is I'm kind of uh, conflicted, me personally. Um, again, born and raised in Nigeria up until the age of 15, moved to America. Um, like a lot of Nigerians, I, I don't want to speak for all Nigerians, of course, you know, but a lot of a lot of Nigerians that I met, a lot of Nigerians left Nigeria with no hope of ever going back. Because, you know, if you're coming from, if your family is not well to do, life in Nigeria is hard. It just, it just it just is, you know, and this is what what pisses me off when I see some of these Nigerian celebrities trying to um, paint the, this ridiculous narrative or picture that Nigeria is Wakanda because it's not. You know, I went through hell in Nigeria. My family wasn't poor per se, but there's not a whole lot of opportunities for people like myself. Mm. You know what I mean? Trying to find myself, trying to find a voice. I felt like a nobody. There's no opportunity whatsoever. And leaving Nigeria and moving to America, um, of course, I went through the waves and the motions and eventually stabilized being in America and now eventually having the privilege of being a black man in America, well-educated, well-traveled and all that good stuff, right? And I'm starting to think deeper and seeing how the issues in Nigeria, the issues in Africa, the issues in the world, and it's, it's a hot mess everywhere. And like a lot of people like myself, after I've kind of grown um holistically i have i have started to want to go back to give to give back to africa to give back to nigeria it doesn't have to be africa and doesn't have to be nigeria specifically i want to go back to africa to give back because at the end of the day they're my people you mm -hmm. know what i mean um i'm not american by birth i could have been easily skipped that opportunity to come to america and just going back to Nigeria every year or the times that I've been back to Nigeria since I moved to America and seeing the lack of opportunity, seeing some of the people that I went to high school with back in Nigeria, seeing how there's not a whole lot going on in their mm. lives and seeing how that's constantly being perpetuated. There's not a whole lot of opportunities to unplug from that. It hurts me. It really does hurt me mentally and spiritually. And I want to go back or give back however way I can. But one of the issues that I'm having, and I feel like a lot of people like myself are having, is because I feel like Africa, actually specifically Nigeria, doesn't really have um, the tools for people like myself. 
um, there's not an, enough incentive. There's not enough motivation for people like myself who who are considered the privileged Nigerians. And by privilege, I mean like the Western privilege to come back to inside change. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? There's not a there's not a lot of opportunities for that. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because you're talking about some of these kids that um, you're prepping sent into the Western schools and some of you kids have gotten into some schools in America and I guess the UK as well. What are realistically, what are their chances of graduating from some of these top universities like Harvard or whatnot and getting the opportunities and privilege associated with being an Ivy League graduate, having a Western passport, Western opportunities and leaving all that behind to move back to say Kenya to drive mm. change what are realistically answer this as realistic as possible what are the opportunities what are the realistic opportunities for these people to come back to the continent with their privilege to drive change and i ask this from a person perspective i really want to i've always mm -hmm. wanted to go back to nigeria and um a lot of people who know me know that i've been having that conversation um maybe not necessarily nigeria but also move back to africa to do something you know to help out one way or the other and i don't want to just pack up my bags and move back to Africa because a lot of times I feel like a lot of people who do that add to the mess without even alleviating anything, you know, without even, you know, you add to the mess because now you're moving back to Nigeria with your privilege and taking an opportunity for somebody who actually needs it as opposed to you having more staying back in the West and enjoying the privileges and opportunities, opportunities that come with living in the West. You know what I mean? How can a person like me, how can people like myself, Africans who live in the West, who have Western opportunities, Western privileges, go back to Africa to incite change. Are there realistic opportunities? Are there realistic programs to incite, to motivate, mm -hmm. to inspire privileged Nigerians and diaspora, privileged Africans and diaspora to come back to the continent? Yeah, um, I can answer that with a brief story. And then just remind me, I have like a second point to add of like, we have this one student program loves him. He was one of the original ones. Went to the University of Cape Town to study computer engineering. Um, and for context, we're on the other side of the country in a very rural, very village-like type communities. And this boy, after graduating, he was very gung-ho on trying to return back and create an art cafe, which is, from a Western perspective, not extremely revolutionary, but in that, like, there's nothing even close to a cafe in our area. It was a very radical idea, but he was very gung-ho about it. And our organization got very excited for this decision he was making because it showed how much he was committed to this ideal that we were sharing of, like, how do you inspire this community you come from? And I remember it was something we talked about, we talked about, we talked about, and then eventually we were like, where is he? When does he show up? And at the end of the day, he did end up taking a coding job in Cape Town. And... There's no nothing you can blame him for in that decision of when you look at, especially a year of the pandemic, like would you really sacrifice that financial and job security for mm -hmm. such an avenue? And I think a lot of what my current organization thinks about is like, what are the systems and the supports that you need to set up to support alumni to come back? Is it housing? Is it like financial literacy? Like what do they actually need? I would say, I think what I've learned is a lot of what needs to change at a grassroots level is cultural. Mm. And I think shaping and building a cultural revolution is probably one of the most like overwhelming things that you can take on, especially taking on a loan. So I think at the end of the day, like, no, there aren't 
specifically like opportunities that have a huge payout already but it's the same thing of like I think some people are looking for an easy way out mm. of like oh yeah here's this ready-made position that was just waiting for a privileged Nigerian to come back and take I don't think that exists and I think if it did it would be we'd be much further along mm-hmm. so I feel like a lot of people just get intimidated out of that very 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 fairly I think about this program I currently am working for <clears throat> I don't think I would have come and started that on my own, but it was really easy to come underneath an umbrella organization Mm -hmm. and have that security. So ultimately, like, no, it's not very, there's not a ready-made path, but that's because it's very difficult work. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of like the compromise we make of like, this is where exceptionalism falls apart of like, how many kids are you pumping out? What does their support look like when they come back? And what are they actually doing when they come back? No one knows what that looks like. I think my second point is counteracting of like, probably the bigger problem is like, it, you're forming a new elite through exceptionalism models mm-hmm. of like, now we have a cohort of these kids who come from this village whose parents work as farmers and get paid nothing um, who have been to the U.S. and have done this and have done that and like they are no longer fit to be working in that they're like no longer useful like the skills that they've gone and acquired don't necessarily translate back to being a good community member so part of it is like are all the systems failing by not just taking the whole lump sum of a population and trying to lift them up instead of creating an elite of like picking the kids who are most privileged. <clears throat> and that's where you say of like, well, what can a privileged Nigerian come back and do? And like, maybe it does, maybe say fuck the privileged Nigerians and stay in America. And it's like about all of Nigeria getting lifted up to the level. And this is something that I'll say of like, when I lived in Kenya, corruption is at like every single level. You'll mm-hmm. get corrupted by the food vendor. You'll get corrupted by the security guard at your gate. I would say like, I think sometimes the model that we have in our organization is like, you can go out and be anything, just go out and do it really, really well. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining a world in which like, if all Kenyan Matatu drivers stop scamming their customers, like what would that change? If all food vendor people were like more reliable, like what would that change? So it's, it's trying to think about like, what can be moved at the micro level that's gonna have macro change. Okay. That's, that's really interesting because yes, you're pushing all these kids to Western countries for opportunities. And, you know, some of them go through Ivy League schools, some of these huge programs and things like that, which is very commendable. But also, we also have to be realistic in the sense that some of these countries like the U.S., Canada, U.K., they also have an eye for the best of the best. Mm. You know what I mean? So um, a kid, say an underprivileged kid from South Africa, whose parents are farmers and dirt poor and somehow your program pushes that kid to harvard and the kid graduates top of the class from harvard america is going to want to keep that kid there's um, a lot of incentives for you know i think countries like australia if you have a phd or i think canada or something like that they give you citizenship or something like that there's Mm -hmm. like opportunities um you're going to see companies trying to recruit you you know and some of these companies that started at six figures and a kid from a poor village in south africa has probably never even seen four figures tug more six figures you know what i mean so it's a lot more attractive to stay back here and i can also say for myself of course i'm not really elite or anything but living in america life is relatively better here and i say relatively because things are you know it's not as pristine as a lot of people would say it you know a a lot of people who've never been to america would say um however 
there's a lot of things that I genuinely appreciate about living in America, how a lot of things work. You know what I mean? Um, opportunities are there. You have to go find them, but they're there. America is a, is a country where the child of anybody can be anybody without needing anybody. And I'm quoting Aisha, Aisha Yusuf, one of the face of um, the revolution going on in Nigeria right now as a result of the NSARS. She said that you know, for a country to be alive, it has to be a country that the child of anybody can be anybody without needing anybody. And that's what America is. That's what America has been for a lot of people. And that's what America has been for me. There's a lot more opportunities, attractive opportunities to keep people here, especially the best of the best. And I feel like the people who developed this country, I don't know who they are or they've they've done a good job, you know, keeping people here through scholarships. Uh, reduction of this a reduction of that or you know offering citizenship easier path to citizenship job opportunities recruitments and things like that so that kid from that poor family in south africa is going to be like what am i going back there to do anyway you know there's so much corruption going on there's too much going on in south africa why would i even want why to go you? back and and try to tackle this especially mm -hmm. when i see a lot of people out here can't even be bothered you know right. what i mean a lot of people like myself who have this opportunity and i feel like in order to do that kind of stuff you know go back to help it has to be like deep within you intrinsically motivated a lot of passion and genuine you know genuine want to contribute and i feel like a lot of people just don't have that or just can't be bothered yeah part of me is like i just don't even know if that's the right thing to be worried about i guess like i'm gonna try to put this in like a very concrete example is a lot of the students we work with are kids who are like 30 to 40 percent higher scoring than their classmates um so like on a given math test like our kids might score an 80 and the class average is around a 40 and that's how they stand out so much so i think the narrative you're saying is like that 80 percent kid is going to get opportunity after opportunity and it's going to be hard for them to say no and move back to a community that they didn't really feel a part of mm -hmm. part of me is like do we need to focus on how to craft life around this 80% kid to get them to stay or is it more so about how do we get there to not be a class average of 40% if there's a class average of 60% are we necessarily as worried for what those students are going to go out and be able to do with their lives and so that's where I'm thinking of like a lot of kids score really poorly because they still don't know English but they're given tests in English so is there a better lover of change to move instead of holding back somebody from whatever life journey they're on because you wouldn't want that on yourself either is there something else that helps like bring up the majority of the population and stop focusing on the minority? Brain dump's a real thing, but it's like when you brain dump from a really impoverished community that's very felt, when you brain dump from an average community, it's not as bad. Hmm. So, okay, so basically push everyone to be better as opposed to just focus on specific people. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think it's about like pushing or like encouraging and motivating. It's probably about like there's some system, there's something that's lacking in the theory of change. So like dewormers, dewormers gets kids to attend school. So like that's something that like you're not necessarily going out and trying to like motivate students, but you're just saying like if you deworm your kid, they're going to be healthier throughout the year. They attend school more often. Yeah, but if you if you yeah okay, so if you keep driving for change, you know, not to change. If you keep pushing kids to do the best you know they can, and everybody starts working hard, and you know have high test scores and doing the best, the best the best are still going to be 
um, they're all going to have opportunities, but the best of the best are going to have the the international opportunities. Those are the ones that are going to go to the Americas mm-hmm. and you know things like that. Um, so perhaps yes, the average kids back home they're still going to be more educated, become more educated, learn English, you know, gain the the tools and skills necessary to drive change within South Africa, for example, or Kenya, wherever it is. Realistically, what are the chances that they actually get to use those things that they learn without the privilege of going to the West, per se? Because there is a privilege associated with going to the West or having education from the West, especially Ivy League. So for those kids that, that, are, that don't have the opportunity to um, go to the West, say Harvard, you mm-hmm. know, and they were able to remain back in whatever country they're in, say Kenya, go to school in Kenya, graduate, maybe not even top of the class. Mm. What are realistically their opportunities to implement some of those things that they le- they learn from school to drive change within Kenya without leaving Kenya um, and getting that Western stamp privilege? I don't know if that, I don't think it, it's about them then going out and driving change i think it's just them going out and then being the change being the change but the but change. realistically though what, what are the chances of that happening let's say i'm one of your kids in your school and i graduate from your program okay. i never get to go to america i never uh-huh. go to australia whatnot i go to your school uh-huh. went to high school uh-huh. went to college in the, the same country and i graduate let's, wait, let's just hold up Let's say like you didn't even go to university. Sometimes I think what our program provides is the ability to get kids to adhere to certain standards long enough to then like build the life that they want to build when they're ready to build that. So I've had students who have come to me and say like if it wasn't for this program, like I swear I would be a dad by this point. And some of these things are like, okay, if we're building more solid avenues for kids to feel like they can have certain levels of success like oh i can foresee myself graduating like mm, can we to do more to do more as opposed to just conforming because yeah. i don't think it's necessarily about like oh now you're gonna go be a revolutionary and go into government but i do think it's like i talk to my kids all the time about this i'm like hey if you want to go be a taxi driver go do it be a really good one don't drink while you're doing it don't smoke while you're doing it like don't do all these things that are currently bad about the taxi system okay so it's more so an individual approach not necessarily a community approach as in you're inciting change within the individual and not necessarily trying to recruit people to change the i guess the the narrative of a country but that's the thing is like and together it does yeah when if you have like whole generations matriculating from you from let's say high school Uh who are stepping into their first jobs with the right character and the right opportunities open up like will that more spiral out change than what we have now so i mean like we're negating the fact that there's all these other factors that are outside of character character is not the only issue but it's that's what i'm thinking of is like there's a way of rewriting culture than having a revolutionary it's about having a whole freaking community come through Oof. but that's 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 difficult that's difficult because that's just a little pocket um i've I can't really speak for Africa. I've only been to just a handful of other African countries, but I can definitely speak for Nigeria because that's where I've lived to, lived mm-hmm. in. Uh, I've lived there and went to school there. Most of the people I know in Africa, on the African continent, are either living in Nigeria or from Nigeria. And living in Nigeria, knowing what I know about Nigeria, and I'm not dissing my own people, I'm a realist. It's a hot mess. 
a hot flaming mess okay mm -hmm. And it pisses me off when I see Nigerians who lie about how awesome Nigeria is and all that nonsense, you know, and they don't live in Nigeria, <laughs> you know, because it's easy for you to pretend that Nigeria is awesome, but I don't see your kids being born in Nigeria. You don't even have a Nigerian passport, you know what I'm saying? So there's too much going on in Nigeria, and it really hurts me, you know, like, it hurts my soul seeing that, you know, there's from, from, the kidnappings the, matter of fact there's um a kidnap the kidnapping of over 600 school boys that just happened a few days ago mm -hmm. and it blows my mind how something like this can happen in broad daylight in complete broad daylight how in the hell do you kidnap 600 people in broad daylight nobody saw this coming you know like there was there a bus was there like how you know what i'm saying matter of fact it's it happened in the same state that our what their president buhari is from and I don't know if you're familiar with the whole NSARS thing that just happened. You know, we went for the protests here in, in Texas and it was just like an international global sensation. Mm -hmm. Everyone's hashtagging NSARS because I talked about it. I, I made several episodes on NSARS and breaking it down for anybody who's not familiar with um, what NSARS means, you know. And of course, after that NSARS, um, there are people in Nigeria who were protesting at the Leki Togate in Nigeria and they were massacred by the Nigerian military. It's so sad. There's so much wrong with Nigeria, poor infrastructure, healthcare is it's horrible. Um, electricity power does not exist or it does exist, but it's very limited. Education is just trash. The government is just trash. L legal system doesn't work. It's a hot mess. And I guess a person like me is, yes, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to incite change in, an, in, in the individual, you know, incite people within that country. Let's say Nigeria, for example, you're trying to incite change within that country. Hey, go be your best self as opposed to settling down or settling for less, you know, um, go be your, your best version. Go to school, go this, go do that, do this, you know, do all that great stuff with your life. Go apply yourself. But as a person who is grad a lot of Nigerians are doing that anyway. A lot of kids in Nigeria are doing that. They're applying themselves, they're going to school, they're, you know, top of their class, they speak English, they they take all these exams and they graduate top of the class and things like that. But the opportunity is still very little. The 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 mess of the country is still there. There's just so much, so much piled up. And I guess a person like myself is like, how? How can we change this? And I'm guessing this is also going on in South Africa and in um, Kenya and all the places that you've, you've lived in. And I guess my question to you is, you as, as a foreign worker that lives in Africa who has dedicated his life to drive change in Africa, right? Do you see any possibility of any of some of these problems changing anytime soon? Of course, there are problems all around the world. There are problems here in America. There are problems in Asia, problems in, you know, South America. But... Since we're both, we both have some type of association with Africa, we're just going to focus on Africa right now because I feel like there's just a lot going on. And according to that book, the clock is ticking. Time will come when Africa, may, it may be too difficult or too late to reclaim Africa before it becomes a new colony of somebody else, you know, things like that. So how can we realistically change Africa? How can we realistically change the narrative of Africa? How can we realistically drive change in Africa? 
through revolution, education, challenging the norms, the cultural systems. How? Because I'm trying to figure this shit out. Mm. You know, it's it's a it's a dilemma in my head, really. You know, on one hand, I love my people and I want to be there for them, and at the same time, to them, like Ugh, these people again, you know. And I feel like part of our problem is our mentality that that outdated cultural traditions that people perpetuate you know knowingly and unknowingly even though a lot of these systems um don't serve us they don't do anything for us our education systems don't serve us they're they're british our government systems are are european our standards are eurocentric a whole lot of things that are practiced in nigeria and all throughout africa even our languages are not african you know i feel like that's part of the problems you know some of the traditions even religion is a problem how can we how can what suggestion as a person who has dedicated who has dedicated his life to working in Africa and driving change in Africa what suggestions would you give to change some of these or at least to stabilize things in Africa to hopefully change Africa for the best or at least begin the process of turning things around did i make sense yeah, that's or a good fucking question is it <laughs> a good question or no okay. no it's a hard question but it's fine <laughs> Um, I would say like I think it's important first and like I will check myself as a white American that I can't paint a rosy picture fairly but I think what happens a lot and what happens to white people people all over the world is like they see the forest for the trees and I think although it appears to be a hot mess all over there has been a lot of change as well in Africa in Africa what kind of changes you have to look at the micro levels of things okay like when you look into some of these programs some of these like poverty action labs and some of the research that they're doing there is been movement and i think sometimes where pessimism will get us or realism will get us is like you see that movement but you see that movement within a pile of shit so you're mm. just like well you're still covered in shit so like what what's the point but i would say like there are actors who are finding these levers that work and i think it's good to just like not denounce that like it's a lost cause but I do agree of like, I think I might also adhere to the sentiment that you were just getting at is a lot of what has gotten Africa to where it is today is it was used as a tool by a lot of the other privileged countries in the world that have really like rooted it into some very drastic losses, into some really drastic behaviors and actions that are now really hard to work out of. And I think that might have done in certain aspects of what Africa is now capable of, just like other parts of the world too. So I do think like change could be possible, but I think like we're also very far down the line of some things being near 100% cemented into how some of the frameworks around Africa work. And I feel like that then means is like, are we just looking for like the most optimal situation and can we not guarantee a utopia? And I think that's where people get very discouraged. Listening to you, it sounds like uh, if I don't convince you, like, this is it. Like, and your pledge to trying to work towards the betterment of Nigeria is <clears throat> out the window. And I think, like, that's what happens to a lot of people is, like, Africa is seen as a little bit of a lost cause because it's so difficult because like making progress in this way just leads you to run into this wall or this mm -hmm. obstacle hello again everyone so this is the end of part one please make sure to download subscribe share with your friends and family and please also stay tuned for part two thank you mm -hmm.